0: I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Auto Magazine. Every month, Acquisition Auto Magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm here with Michael Frankel. He is the co-founder and managing partner of Trajectory Capital. Thank you for being on the show today, Michael.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: That's cool. I always like to start off with kind of like where did you get, you know, like kind of did you get into this space? I always jokingly say, "Hey, you were born, and then you ended up on a podcast about buying and selling companies." Could you fill out the gap in between? Uh, what's your origin story, guy?
1: Sure. So, you know, I, I started my career as a lawyer and a banker, and I sort of got all these tools. And I, I figured out pretty early in my life that I like to make things grow. Um, uh, I, I, I like radical change. And I figured out that MA is this amazing way to create radical change. You, you know, you, you instantly buy or sell a business and transform it and move capital around. And I just found MA to be really, really exciting. Um, and the other thing I liked about MA is you get to play with every part of the toy, right? You get to dig into tech and people and customers and finance and legal and HR, and you get to do all of that stuff. And so that sort of attracted me to m and it's, it's a way to be a big change agent and to sort of dabble in every part. You know, it's like you get to eat every part of the animal. Um, and so I, uh, I started my career and I've done M&A from sort of every different angle imaginable, law, finance, buyer, seller, investor, um, done about 110 deals in my career. And and I just find them fascinating because no matter how many I do, every single one is different and every single one scares, surprises, sort of delights me, um, you know, which I, I, I think it's rare that you find a career where you can have that much diversity um, you know, other than if you choose to be an artist and you can sort of make your own way. So for, for me, that's, that's the fun thing about M&A is it's, it's, it's infinitely interesting no matter how long I do it. Now, lawyer, are you practicing or recovering? Oh, God, no. Um, I, I, was, I was a lawyer for three years in the 90s. Um, I, I, I like to say I am the world's best client. Um, because I, I, I can issue spot and then I turn to my lawyer and go, I'm not a lawyer. You're a lawyer. You do this. Um, so yeah, I was, I was a lawyer for a few years, but it was great boot camp because the nice thing about being an M and a lawyer is you have to document everything. So you get a chance to like dig into and ask your client about every part of the exercise. Um, so that it was, it was good experience, but no, I'm, I'm definitely on the business side. Um, and you know, banking was, was fun for me, but I think I found, While I like doing the deal, I was much more interested in the why are we doing it at the front end and how do we actually make the money at the back end? So the the transaction negotiation is super fun, but I, I I like to have the whole thing. So I like to be the principal who's deciding why we're doing this and then wrenching on the business after we buy it to make it the best it can be.
0: So we were talking just a little bit before we clicked the go live button about the economy where we're going and this huge opportunity of corporate divesture. I can't even say the word. Corporates divesting companies. I don't know why I couldn't say the other one, but uh, anyway, corporates, uh, corporate companies getting rid of uh, you know their pet projects and companies they acquired and no longer need and stuff. Let's talk about that a little bit because that's there. There's an opportunity there to pick up some real. For us, as small to medium business owners and uh, acquisition entrepreneurs, what would be life changing businesses for us, but on their radar, just doesn't even make a bump in the in the uh, income statement.
1: So, uh, absolutely, I, I think there's in my mind there's two parts to it. First is what's driving it, and as a general matter, there are always exceptions to every rule. But as a general matter, big corporates, when the market is hot, they let off strategy, sort of, you know. Uh, orphan businesses just sit on the sidelines because they're not desperate for money. Everything's going great. We just have to focus on growth. As soon as the market starts to turn down, everyone sharpens their pencils and they say, number one, what's not making us as much money or as much growth as we'd like? Or B, or uh, number two, what what just is off strategy? And we've, we're trying to clean up the balance sheet. And so generally speaking, at the beginning of any down market, right, you know, you see it in... 2009, 2010, you could see it in 2000, 2001, 2002. You generally see this like lift in the volume of divestitures in general, but oftentimes in these sort of isolated businesses that have been um, uh, left alone and not really focused on. Um, and, And what appeals to me about these businesses is usually sometimes they're just bad businesses and no one should have them and they should be shut down. But I would say more often than not, they are fundamentally sound businesses. In other words, they have a thing that does something well that customers actually want. But because they are off strategy for the parent company, they sort of get starved for attention. So they don't get investment capital. If they're profitable, the profits get sucked out. Um, the strongest managers don't want to work there because it's sort of an unwritten rule in the organization. That's not where you go to build your career. So they lose the strongest managers. Um, They don't get the attention of the sales force in the organization. They don't get sort of any attention. And so they languish, but they usually have this core of goodness inside of them that if you apply basic business blocking and tackling to, you can build something really exciting, right? You know, it's not rocket science. It's, uh, stand up a sales team, fix pricing, uh, figure out how to you know uh, modernize the product. Maybe they haven't changed the u- the user experience in in, in ten years. Um, go, you uh, go uh, partner with ecosystem partners that you wouldn't have been able to because parent co had its policies about uh, about those. You know, change pricing, do do all kinds of stuff that sort of what a real operator does with these businesses. And you can extract a lot of value. The other thing I like about these opportunities is, um, generally speaking, there's this amazing arbitrage because the big corporates are not as focused on purchase price, especially for the small ones, right? If you're a $20 billion company, $30 billion company, and you have a $5 million, $10 million asset, yeah, sure, you you know more money is better than less money. But on my priority list as the corporate development guy who's selling it, my first priority is never purchase price. My first priority is let's get this done fast, maybe by the end of the year. Um, let's not have any liabilities. I don't want crazy reps and warranties on this thing. When it's gone, it's gone. Um, I want the employees treated well because you know, they're going to talk to their former colleagues. Um, I want the customers treated well because maybe the customers are also still customers of mine, right? So maybe it's a $50,000 customer of this business. And a $27 million customer of mine, I don't want that customer mad, even though I'll say, oh, well, we divested that business. Like, I don't care. You sold me the thing. So I'm holding you accountable if, if it's not delivered well. So there are all these other things that I'm much more concerned with than purchase price. And if you come along as an operator and go, I get you. I'm going to make this easy. I'm going to make it fast. I'm not going to require reps out of you. I'm going to take care of your employees, your customers. Maybe I even throw in a transition services agreement so that you know you make a little bit of money off of off of me that goes through your income statement, which you care about more than your balance sheet. You'll you, you'll win the deal over over other buyers, um, often non-competitively, right? The other thing about these businesses is if they're that small, they may not even hire a banker, right? So it's you know. For them, it's just get it, get it gone.
0: Let's take a step back because, like, my audience is comprised of a lot of small to medium business buyers, and um, like, we know how to source deals. We know how to cold, you know, send cold emails and you know letters and postcard, whatever, right? Okay. Like, does that. How do you reach inside of a major corporation? How do you reach inside of a Cisco or a Google or a uh, Adobe or one of those guys and say, hey? got my eyes on this little thing over here you don't seem to be doing much with what are you up to i mean what's the
1: yeah so i I think in a perfect world well number one if if you actually know the asset that you want that's a huge leg up if you actually know the asset that you want my advice is go to the general manager who is one or two steps above that asset but not four or five steps above so and and there's a reason for this if it's a five million dollar revenue business let's say Leader who owns it and owns a total of $100 million, that's a relevant part of their world. They care about it. It's a distraction to their team. It maybe is dragging down their personal numbers for the year. They're going to take an interest in trying to resolve this. If you go too high up in the organization, you let's say you know the CEO of Oracle. You go to the CEO of Oracle and go, hey, you know, I want to buy this little $5 million thing. It, it just doesn't matter to them, right? Now, if you know them well enough, maybe they will call down, you know, 17 phone calls down in the organization and get you to the right guy and say, hey, please pay attention. But for the most part, they just don't care. And if you go to the business owner who owns the $5 million business, they're terrified. The last thing they want to do is be sold to someone. So there's sort of a sweet spot at the person who has the power to sell the business, and but is still low enough in the organization that it matters to them what happens. However, that assumes you know exactly what business you want to buy. If you don't know what business you want to buy, I would either start with people like that and sort of say, hey, is there anything within your $100 million that you don't want? Or you can go to the corp- the corporate development people in the business. The challenge with corporate development people is – As a general matter, they want to run a rigorous process. They're wired. Your $100 million GM doesn't care about the purchase price because it doesn't go to him. It goes to the mothership's balance sheet. Um, They care about getting this out of their business because it's a distraction. The corporate development people are a little more likely to care about purchase price because, you know, if you have a hammer, everything's a nail. So they're, they're thinking, I've got to sell something. When you sell something, you want to get the biggest price. But, and this is what I think will be really true over the next couple of years, that's only if they don't have anything else on their plate. So the perfect situation is if you can get to the corporate development person at a big company in a space where you have some expertise, right? You're not just some random person coming out of the woodwork, but you're like, look, I, I've run a bunch of businesses that are the same as some of your businesses. I'm credible, right? I, can't, I here's, here's the money I have, so I'm, you can take me seriously. If they're working on 10 deals, they may just want to dump the smallest one. So maybe... They're so distracted by other stuff that they go, oh, this is an easy way to get rid of the littlest one. And that's the point at which they'll go, I'm not going to bother to hire a banker. I'm not going to run some big M&A process. I'm doing that for the $500 million business unit that I'm selling. But for this $4 million business unit that I'm selling, you know what? You, you, seem, you seem to know what you're doing. You seem credible. Uh, Let's run a super quick process. Don't make me do a whole bunch of diligence and, you know, provide a whole bunch of diligence and I'll just let it go. So I I think those are sort of the entry points. Um, The other thing I would say is if it's an industry sector, you know, well, gossip is a wonderful thing. And my experience is generally speaking, these little businesses, everyone knows they are unloved within the organization. They know they're unloved within the organization. This is not a mystery. So if you hang out at a industry conference and I've always said the best market intelligence and due diligence is found at the bar at industry conferences when you're (laughs) the guy who's buying the drinks, Um, because no one's going to give you anything that's strictly, you know, they're not going to be like, oh, well, here are the financials for that business. But they're certainly going to go. Yeah, it's a great product, but it's just not what we're focused on right now. And I feel bad for those guys because they're not getting any they're not getting any capital. You'll hear stories like that. Um, and so if you know a space well and you can sort of hang around, you'll you'll learn who the ugly ducklings are. And then I would do my hundred million dollar GM or corporate development to go after the ugly ducklings.
0: Kind of know your space, know the, at least the industry and the type of uh, product you're looking for. Get in connection with those guys in the industry conferences and the uh, uh, places they hang out. Maybe even on the social. I mean, I I, I could see where yeah. if you're in the right circles on the social social networks, and you say, hey, if you're uh, if your company doesn't love you, <laughs> right? Yeah. If you're if you're a, if you're a product inside of a company and the, and the company doesn't love you, you don't get the capital, you don't get anything, you know. Yeah. Talk to your boss's boss and see if he wants you know wants to chat with me. I'm looking for oh, something yeah. like that.
1: I yeah. think that's especially true if you, as the buyer, are I don't know how to put this, but senior enough that whoever is running that little tiny business would view you as a viable boss. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, if they if they think that they're, you know, the big cheese, they may not want to sell to you because they don't want to work for you. And you're gonna lean in, right? You're not, you're not gonna be a hands-on, you know, sort of uh, chairman of the board. Um, But in most cases, if you're an experienced entrepreneur and credible, and they're a relatively junior person who's been left holding the bag for this little product, absolutely, they may go, oh, my gosh, I would love to imagine instead of being buried inside this giant bureaucracy where I have no equity and no upside, no one pays any attention to me, it's ruining my career, I can go work at the feet of this successful entrepreneur is going to teach me stuff and they're going to give me a chunk of the company. Right. right. I can, you know, I'll, they're going to give me 3% of the company. And if we turn this into this amazing thing that I think we can, I'm going to make big bucks. So I, I, I think, you know, you got to be a little delicate about that, that approach. Um, that's why I think friends of friends is a great way. If you know somebody in the business, in the company, because it's, like I said, it's not a big secret who the ugly ducklings are.
0: We're talking a little bit about what, you know, what distracts, um, you know, valuation. Also, one of the things we were chatting about, like what can, you know, what, I think you see one of your pet peeves was you see, see companies doing X, Y, and Z. And you're like, man, if they quit doing that, their comp- I could pay them more for their company. Yeah. What are those type of things that are, um, especially in the tech space we were talking about, what are those things? And, you know, how can people avoid hurting themselves in, in a valuation process of selling their business?
1: Yeah, it, this drives me absolutely bonkers because um, that's what I, I, I mentioned to you before. Listen, in any negotiation, I understand you're going to try to get more of, of what's sitting in the middle of the table. I'm going to try to get more. Fair enough. What drives me nuts is when we, you know, before starting negotiation, we light $2 on fire and take it off the table. So, you know, if you're selling to a big corporate, I think there's, there's a couple of different layers. The first one is sort of legal and compliance stuff, right? Just don't have bad stuff going on, whether it's HR stuff or it's, you know, you didn't have a license to, to content you were using. A great example in tech is open source code. If you're using open source code in the wrong way, any big buyer will not touch you. Or if they touch you, they will assume that they're going to trash all your code and rewrite it because they'll, you may not get sued, but they'll get sued. Um, or you know, not having everything documented, right? Whether it's uh, uh, all your technical, uh, uh, you know, material, all your code, um, all your architectural design, or if it's your sales process, or if it's your customer service process, or anything, have that all documented, right? Anything that is o- anything that only exists in your brain is a huge problem because number one, you may not want to stay, and even if you say you want to stay. My experience is, I I, I like to say, if you give somebody um, uh, plane money or boat money, they're not staying, right? Um, uh, You know, if you give them anything more, or house money, if you give them anything more than car money, they're not staying, especially because you've just proven to them they're a good entrepreneur. So if they're a good entrepreneur, the second they can walk away, they're going to go do it again, which, by the way, good for them. But that means you need to be sure that if you walk out the door not even at the end of your earnout, but maybe you know three four months after after the sale the the company doesn't get catastrophically damaged because if that's the case i'm going to find it out in diligence and you know what i'm going to do i'm going to assume that that catastrophe happens i'm going to drop my purchase price to allow me to recover from it um, so along similar lines uh, succession planning uh you know a lot of smaller companies all the wisdom and the expertise and a lot of the work resides at the top. The problem with that is you're going to go. So if the, if the man or woman who is behind you, responsible for sales or responsible for the product, responsible for finance, is an idiot, I'm going to figure that out too. And I'm going to go, okay, so we're going to go through a six-month period of horrific performance while we fix that. Similarly, uh, uh, customer contracts right? And actually any contract, any contract should be on market terms that I'm going to find acceptable, right? Uh, because I'm absorbing you. So as an example, if your customer contracts say, if my product doesn't work, you can sue me for infinity dollars. It's going to be a problem for me, the big buyer, and I'm going to have to figure out what to do about that. And, and, or, or similarly, if your contracts are really vague about what level of support you'll provide, right? If there's a problem, we'll solve it for you, no matter what it is, all that kind of stuff. I just sit there as I go through diligence and trust me, I will find it. And I go 1% off of purchase price, 1% off of purchase price. And I just tick it off. So all that kind of prep work, in a sense, all you have to do is put yourself in 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 the shoes of a massive corporate buyer who's really risk averse. And they just want to know that they're getting what their deal says they're getting. They don't want surprises. They don't want bad news. They don't want drama. Fix all of that. And then show them how you fixed it because you are at a huge, I'm at a huge disadvantage to you, right? You've run the company. You've had your hands in everything. I've got two weeks after I sign an NDA with you to try to figure out what the heck is going on under the covers. Because of course your, your PowerPoint deck to me is all jazz hands, right? Your PowerPoint deck is we're fantastic. We're beautiful, you know, line, rocket to the stars. Um, I've got like two or three weeks to try to dig through files that you put up on a SharePoint and try to figure out what's actually going on with your company. And so anytime I don't see something or you don't prove to me that something's there, I'm going to assume it's a problem. I'm just it's I got to be risk averse. Right. So you've got me at a huge information disadvantage. So I would fix all of that stuff and then show me how you fixed it. And I, I, I like to say I, I would generally pay 10 to 30 percent more for a company if all that stuff were fixed. You know, it always it always breaks my heart to see an entrepreneur who spent 10 years building a business and loses 30 percent of the value of their work by not doing some relatively simple blocking and tackling over like the 18 months before they sell the business.
0: Side of all the contracts, a lot of these companies like they have recurring uh, uh, contracts for like software as a surface and that tough, you know, one of the things that we're taught to look for is the assumable or language like in the event, the company sells the contract still in place. How I I understand that. I mean, how important is that? I I see it saved me a tough conversation uh, with, all my customers if it's already in place, right?
1: Yeah, I think it I would say generally it's very attractive, right? I the last thing I want to do is have customers walk away. That said, I think it depends on the nature of the product. So if you have a product that's really sticky, I'm a little less worried, right? Like if, you know, uh, I'm, I'm you know, if 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 you have a piece of technology that's buried in the guts of your infrastructure and it would be incredibly painful for you to pull it out, then I'm a little less worried about that because I'm going to have time to go to those customers and say, Hey, we're the new owners. We're, you know, we're going to treat you well, blah, blah, blah. The easier it is for the customers to get out the worse. And actually I'll give you a war story. That is the case study for this. I won't name the company, but a long time ago, early in my career, when I was still, I was even more of an idiot. I acquired um, a little business. There were two characteristics to the business that are important. The first one is, um, the talent market for the talent, especially the customer service reps, was super hot at the time. And the second is that the customers um, it had uh, automatic right to transfer to another vendor on no notice for any reason. And we bought this company. And then I, as the MA guy, went, ta-da, I'm very proud of myself. And I went on to do other stuff. And about a month later, I checked in with the GM who was supposed to be you acquired the business and was supposed to be integrating it. I said, what's going on? He goes, Oh uh, yeah, I should probably check on that. So what do you mean you got to check on that? Haven't, haven't you started to integrate? Haven't you? He goes, no, no, no. We sent out a mass email to all the employees and the customers telling them when we bought the business and then we did nothing else. I said, well, you should go check on that. And when we checked, what we discovered is two things that happened. The first one is all the employees got this email with no information about whether they still had a job how much they were going to get paid, what their benefits were going to be. And it was a hot market. So they all up and left. We lost a third of the employee base. They just walked out. At the same time, all the, all the customers got that email. And the first thing they thought is, well, let me check what the deal is with this. What does this mean for me? They called the customer service reps. Those people weren't at their desks. They were all gone. So the, so the customers got no answer and they got nervous. Half of them left. 50% of the revenue just walked out the door. Um, and so I, my running joke is, but for one airplane ticket, 50 polo shirts and a hundred pizzas, we could have saved that business. Um, so, so it, you know, I mean, that was just bad bad execution, but I think the point is the customer contract thing totally depends on the nature of what your business is. But yeah, as a general matter, it, Everything I don't have to do when I get your company is a it adds value to me, right? So if I don't have to go chasing customers, if I don't have to change contract terms, like that's the worst is if you've got contract terms that are really sketchy, like unlimited liability, you know, I'm going to have to go charging around to customers, getting them to sign new contracts. And anytime you go to a customer and ask them, ask them for a favor, what generally happens is they get a discount. It's stuff like that. Stuff like that and is you're never going to get it perfectly right. But just what I would argue is anybody who owns a business should think to themselves, who am I likely to sell this thing to? And what are they likely to care about? What in my business right now would really scare the bejesus out of them? And whatever that is, start fixing that thing. Well,
0: where's the next area we should look at here? I mean, you're, you, uh, there's something you are working on that I don't know anything about and I'm really curious of, and if you're willing to chat about it, let's, let's, sure. uh, I'm going to throw that at the SPAC. So yeah. you guys have a SPAC. So how does, how does that work? I, I kind of know, cause I've done the research and I've read the Wikipedia stuff and stuff like that, but I've never created one. And I, I, I see a lot of them, they, they get funded and then they don't have an acquisition, right? So, yeah.
1: So spacs, spacs, i think are and there are a lot of examples of this i mean venture capital is an example they're just an asset they're just a mechanism for doing something and like anything else it's a hammer right you can use it to hammer a nail you can use it to break glass you know the, the fundamental premise of the spac is that you have companies out there that are ready to be public companies but aren't natural candidates for the very traditional ipo process They are relatively small, so they're not going to get enough attention from the investment banks. They're sort of complicated. So the retail investor base won't understand them. The IPO market is shut down. Like right now, the IPO market is basically shut down. There are zero IPOs happening. That doesn't mean you don't have a good company, right? You can have individual good companies even when the IPO market is shut down. So for all those reasons, the SPAC is a mechanism to get those companies public. And it's a, a pretty simple mechanism a SPAC is just a public company whose sole asset is a big bag of money, right? Right. So it's publicly listed, but it has no operations, has no products, has no, it's just a bag of money. And the premise of the SPAC is it finds a non-public company that is ready to be a public company. It's big enough, it's profitable enough, it's got the right management team, and you merge the two things together. And technically, from a legal perspective, this goes back to my little period as a lawyer. It's a it's a merger, but the resulting entity is largely the private entity, right? That's the management team. That's the board. Um, and what they get from the SPAC is a public vehicle, so they become public instantly. They change the name, so the name becomes whatever the operating company is. And they get whatever portion of the bag of money is not redeemed because the investors in the SPAC have the right to pull their money back um, because they... They, they don't know what the company is that's going to be merged yet. So once they find out which company is going to be merged with, they get to make a choice. They can either get their money back or they can get shares in the new company. So it's, it's a pretty straightforward mechanism. I think what you've seen over the past year is like, like venture in 2000, you had a lot of froth and you had SPAC teams doing smart things. And you had SPAC teams doing crazy and maybe you could even argue in some cases, borderline fraudulent things. Um, So there's a lot of noise around SPACs and you saw this big wave up and now you're seeing a big wave down. Very few are coming out. My personal view is it's just another mechanism for accomplishing a financial goal. And, you know, it'll it'll come back. It'll go through a dead period, uh, just like venture did. Right. After a whole bunch of fairly wacky stuff happened in venture in ninety nine into 2000, you had a period where a lot less venture investing was happening in 2001, 2002. But, you know, venture came back. Um, I think SPACs will as well. Um, in my mind, the way to think of a SPAC is if you set aside all the financial engineering, it's just a way of taking a company that is ready to be public and can benefit from being public, public. And then once it's public, it does what public companies do, right? It can sell shares. It can merge with other companies more easily, all that kind of stuff. Um But yeah, there's been a lot of like weird noise. My my one my one recommendation would be look at the this is true of everything. It's not just facts. Look at the fundamentals. Right. It's all everything is all about fundamentals. Right. Financial engineering is financial engineering, but I don't pretend to really understand it. At the end of the day, good companies with a good product that's differentiated will make money. Um, in, in a big addressable market, they will make money and eventually that will be re- represented in their stock price. Bad companies that don't have a good product and don't make money, that'll eventually be represented in their stock price, right? There may be some of this in the meantime, but I'm I'm sort of, I, I, I tend to think long-term and fundamental on this stuff.
0: What particular, I see uh, your hashtag is disruptive innovation. What particular things are you guys looking at? Have you made an acquisition with the SPAC already or are you still looking at okay, what you're looking
1: not. for? So and I would say I'm, we are looking for this not just in the SPAC, but it's our general investing philosophy is we like companies that have built something that is that number one has proven, pro- proven product market fit. Right. Um, you know, I understand there are people out there that like to invest in technologies that aren't proven yet because they could be the next big thing. It's just not what we do. So unicorn first of hunters. All, yeah, exactly. I call yeah. them unicorn hunters. Yeah, yeah, they they want that thing that could turn out to be gigantic. I can't get my head around that. I like to say, I, I like to find something where the, the company says, look, here's the problem. It's a big problem, right? It's a billions of dollars a year problem. Here's our solution. It works and customers like it. And for me, that's the basis of any decent business. Um, so we look for companies that have already reached those milestones. And that are disrupting the market that they're in. Disrupting doesn't mean like teleportation, right? It doesn't have to mean, it just means a better mousetrap, right? And, you know, the better mousetrap can just be, you know, we, we, we figured out we're going to put this on the cloud or we figured out a way to make it easier to use, right? You know, I, I mean, while I'm not advocating any particular technology, and this, this will definitely date me, the iPod was just a better experience than the Zoom right? And that's why it won. It didn't do something. The iPod didn't do something that didn't already exist, right? There were little boxes where you could have your digital music. They just made it better. And that's sort of what we like, is we like to find a company that, you know, finds a problem. There are probably already people solving the problem. They just solve it better. Um, that's And that's what we mean by disruption. Um, you know, and then I'd say, lastly, uh, uh, strong management team. And strong means not just that they're great visionaries who come up with a new thing, but that they have both the skills and the willingness to do all the blocking and tackling and hard work associated with growing a business. Because growing a business is not all just fanfare and press releases with your cool new thing. It's work. It's it's getting into the details around, are we pricing this right? What are our channel partners going to be like? Where Where's our supply chain coming from? All that kind of like, you know, I don't know. I don't find it boring, some people find it boring uh, stuff that that is necessary to actually run a business. Um, if you don't have a management team that wants to do that stuff, you know, you, you're not going to be successful. Uh,
0: yeah, there's a lot of guys out there. They're inventors, right? They're, yeah. they're entrepreneurs. They, they like the, cre- the creation process, but they don't know. like, and, and it takes a different person to be able to say, OK, I've got the skill set to invent this. And to get it to X, but then I have to adapt and overcome to, you know, to, to yeah. grow it and see, I, and I, I'm a big believer. There's a huge difference between growing something and scaling it. Right. Absolutely. You know, so the, yeah. just so we're clear on that, like I, I'm the guy who I can do this, I can grow it. I can prove product market fit, but am I the right guy to scale it to the next level? And yeah. there's if you watch the silicon we talked about this a lot on the show if you watch silicon valley and you watch venture capital so it's a great learning experience to watch a lot of times that founder isn't the ceo when it hits the billion dollar mark right they've been the three of them the guy that could go out and create it was a different guy that could go out and raise the money which is a different guy that could take it from 10 million to 100 million which is a different guy that could ever get it to go public yeah right it takes humbleness and skill to be the guy that says I have to learn and grow as, as this grows and changes. That. I mean, everything about who I am mm-hmm. from the scrappy entrepreneur who came up with an idea to the systems process and engineer, you know, engineer that it takes to take something and make it a public, you know, a publicly traded entity.
1: Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And this, I, you know, I, I, the thing that most impresses me about Larry and Sergey is not that they developed this revolutionary at the time search engine to scrape the web that that's actually, I'm impressed by that. The thing that impresses me the most about those two humans is that at a moment in time when they were rock stars, making massive amounts of money, being hugely successful, no one was putting any pressure on them. They of their own accord stepped back and said, we don't know how to run a company this big. We're going to bring in a pro who is not going to let us dominate them, right? In fact, the opposite. We're going, to, we're going to learn from that pro. We're going to cede control to him so that we can learn from him. And we're going to bring in the best, right? We're not going to bring in somebody that we know we can intellectually dominate. We're going to bring in the best. And then they let him run their business for a long time while they very purposefully learned what they didn't know the the level of, like, ego control necessary to do that, I think, is is frankly more impressive than the fact that they invented the thing in the first place.
0: Yeah, it's like a one in a million type of, type of individual, one in a thousand at least, right? You'll yeah. go through a thousand CEOs who will put their ego in front of them and uh, not humble themselves to be able to move to the next level before you'll ever come across the one guy that goes, you know what? I'm probably not the guy to be, you know to be the the day-to-day uh yeah. you know operator of this company now even though i founded it and i started it i need to step back you know set on the board and let somebody else take it from here to the next level otherwise it's going to take us longer and it's going to cost us more and we have a higher risk of failing that is that's just a skill or a personal development thing you know i didn't want to bring this up i seen your thing you said you uh one of the third thing you mentioned est is that a warner Earhart? i'm sorry what i had seen on one of your um uh, I think in your bio there you mentioned. Uh, let's
1: see here, EST is that right? I'm, am I yeah. messing you?
0: Did I mix you with somebody else?
1: Maybe I I haven't done EST although I've done I I I do meditation and stuff like that. And, yeah, I was and reading. That, it was on your blog. I was reading about your blog and. Uh, yeah, I think that that. Um, oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's a, it's an article I wrote. Uh, yeah, I I think that I'll I'll make it even broader. I think self awareness is the most valuable tool you can have knowing what you do know and knowing what you don't know and being okay with it is is so massively important because otherwise you can't you can't get out of your own way.
0: You know, I mentioned it in your meditation, mindfulness and business innovation yeah. blog about uh, like yoga, organic gardening and EST. And I'm thinking, did yeah. you do EST training? I so, did. Uh, but,
1: but my, but yeah, I know I, I haven't done EST training, but my view is you have to find the right mechanism. And so some, for some people, it's EST. For me, it's meditation. I couldn't do yoga to save my life. Um, But whatever it is, you have to find that thing that number one allows you to be calm and be joyous. And number two allows you to be sort of comfortable in your own skin so that you can say, this is something I don't know, right? This is something I gotta, I gotta get help from somebody else because I don't know it. Those are the people that I think are the most successful because effectively, if, if you can rely on other people, you become a superhero, right? You can do anything because you just fill in your own gaps with, you know, other people around you um if you don't do that then you're limited to whatever it is you can do yeah i'm a big
0: i'm a big fan of uh both i'm old enough that I didn't get to go, or I'm young enough, I didn't get to do the EST thing, but I did the predecessor of what it turned into over time. And I'm a big fan of the meditation and centering self. And the reason I wanted to ring it in this show is that person that can move out of his own way is very well developed, in, you know, personally. He understands yeah. that, like that ego control that does like not letting your ego get in your own way is is something as a CEO that is an incredible, incredible trait. Uh, nice. Not Not getting frustrated under uh, pressure the best the best guest i've had now you're really good at this too best guest i've ever had is uh adam coffee who's done uh, private equity and, and teaches uh does a lot of private equity uh, he has two or three books on it right now he did a, a company he sold the same company like five or six times the last time for a couple billion dollars right i mean he, before the show he had technical issues we got his cleared up i had technical technical issues the show was about almost an hour late starting and he yeah. stayed calm we were laughing the whole time and I just, I just thought about that, like to run a company and to see everything kind of like his internet, you know, like he had to reboot his stuff. I mean, it was just, just one problem after another. And uh, he never, he never got frustrated. He never like, you know, you know, did the exorcist, the uh, no, no curse words, no nothing. Just like kind of smiled and nodded his head. That levelness is a well-developed individual. And that's something that I look for in, in a leader is how do you act
1: under pressure, right? It, it, I think it's really important. It also it makes you a happier human, right? Um, not not being stressed out by this stuff makes you just a happier person, as well as being better at everything. So let's jump
0: back to uh, your uh, mm-hmm. you're out there. You have the SPAC, but you also have Trajectory Capital. Are you guys, you said they're both kind of looking for the same type of thing, the same yeah. type of uh, acquisition. Let's talk That's about right. like when you're looking at these companies. One of the biggest questions always is, and people ask me, you know, like, how do you value companies? How, what, what's the offer look like? How much time do you spend on valuation?
1: So, I we spend a decent amount of time on valuation because we tend to invest in companies that are mature enough that you should be able to assess valuation. Because we're not buying, we're not public investors. We're not buying companies that are trading, and we're not buying mega corporations. The reality is valuation is an art, not a science for two reasons. The first one is um, you for a company, a relatively small company. Most of the valuation is tied up in what it's going to do in the future, which is so hard to assess. Right? So, you know, if I buy a $20 billion company, that's growing at 2% a year. Yeah. I can pretty much assess its value, right? It's, it's almost a discounted cash flow kind of exercise. If you're buying a three, five, 7 million revenue company, it, the, it can fork in the road in two radically different directions. So, you know, in my mind, valuation is less a mathematical exercise and it's more an exercise of really figuring out what you think is going to happen with the business. You can then reverse engineer into math, but it's really, is this a business that can grow 50 a 100% a year? Can it capture a decent amount of this market? Can it expand into, you know, Europe, whatever? It's it's those sort of qualitative decisions about what you think is going to happen with this business. Then the other thing I would say is we can all pretend that valuation is a math uh, exercise, but the reality is valuation is a meeting of the minds, right? It's valuation is what's the least you're able, you're willing to accept for it and the most I'm willing to pay for it. And if there's an overlap between those two numbers, the area in the middle is the negotiation. But, you know, I, I try to spend a lot of time trying to figure out when I'm buying something. What does the other person want for it? And and I want to expand from just financial valuation on that point, because I think that's where we often miss an opportunity. Oftentimes, people want something other than purchase price. And if you can identify what they want, you can actually craft a deal that's better for both sides, right? So we talked about that with the corporate divestitures. I want my customers to be treated well. I'll take a hit on purchase price for that. If you're talking about buying from a founder, they want their employees to be taken care of. I've I've met founders who, you know, whether they can actually explain it uh, in words, they're willing to take a lower price to have their brand remain out there. They built this brand. It's their, it's their family name. It's whatever. Um, Or they want to stay around and they're willing to take a lower purchase price if they can have a role or they don't want to stay around. Um, we, We bought a company last year and the founder explicitly did not want to stay around and was willing to take a lower purchase price. You know, he, it it wasn't even that he wasn't going to sell if he was required to stay for a year or two. So, I, I think in addition to doing the mathematical valuation exercise, and I do all the traditional stuff, right? You look at transaction comps, try to figure out what other people are paying for those businesses. You do financial analysis and discounted cash flow, uh, trading comps, if, if it's big enough to be relevant to a public company to sort of figure out what's, what's the reasonable cash flow. But the reality is the biggest variables in valuation have to do with the likely outcomes in the future because if you if i can get comfortable this company is going to go from growing at 20 percent a year to growing at 100 percent a year i can pay you know five ten times as much for the company so all that funky math based on last year's p l is probably less important than what's my level of confidence that the tech is really differentiated no one else is going to be able to come up with something or you know the management team are actually good at what they do and I'm not going to have to replace them. All that stuff is, you know, I, I, people like to do the math because it's sort of easy and then they can be really proud of the fact that they know the company is worth $7.2356 million. But I, I usually find for any company other than maybe a gold mine, it's much more about guesstimating what's going to happen in the future um, and what the other guy's willing to take. Uh, you know, and, and, and is there an overlap between those two?
0: Yeah. I've had a lot of people on the show and they've all conferred or, or, or uh, agreed that the majority of the deals they've seen, the highest bidder wasn't necessarily the high, the offer that was accepted on multiple offer situations. A lot yeah. of times, as, a matter, as a matter of fact, as close as I can tell, like 70, 75% of the time, it's not the highest offer. It's very often it's the officers are close offers are close. Don't get me wrong, but very often it's who's got going to take care of the, the safe pair of hands, right? Who's going to take care exactly. of the employees yeah. and the cu- customers.
1: Yeah. Especially when you've got a founder, because, you know, I mean, listen, money is nice, but at the end of the day, um, especially if you're already wealthy, money isn't everything. I once looked at a company, we didn't end up buying them for, for reasons that had to do with us, not them. but, Um, it was a company located in a relatively small town. This company represented, I'm going to say 15 or 20% of the jobs in the town. The owner who was already very wealthy, right? You know, this was a relatively small town. Uh, You know, he had by far the biggest house in the town. You know, he had, he had everything he'd ever want. And he said explicitly to me, a big part of what he, how he was going to consider my offer was that I needed to tell him what my plan was for the employees because he was not going to be able to walk around his town or go to his golf club if he sold the company and we fired all the employees. So he a big part of what he wanted was a commitment that we were not going to leave the town. Right? That we were going to keep right. the you know, and he would take a he would take a, a lower purchase price for that because it would destroy his if he was viewed as the guy who got everyone fired, it was gonna destroy his life, his kids were gonna get made fun of at school. That was way more important to him than an extra five million dollars in purchase price. So I, I think Sussing that out, figuring out what does the other person really want. And then if you go a layer deeper, like we talked about ego, like how do they want to feel, right? A a good example is some people want to feel like they win. So you offer them a lower price, knowing that you want them to feel like they beat you up and got to a higher price, or they want to feel like this is a friendship. They don't like to do business with people who are mean. So you don't want to be aggressive. Or they, the, the opposite scenario, they want to feel like they beat somebody who is tough. And if you're too easy on them, that means they must have left something on the table. So you got to fight them really hard. Like figuring out that psychology can translate into dollars of value.
0: Do you have any uh, pointers or, or tips on questions you would ask an entrepreneur to figure out where they stand mentally?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, number one, and, and I am the antithesis of it, but I learned to rein myself in, let them talk. Let them talk and talk and talk. Try to go out to dinner with them. Ask And and you'll find stuff out about them by asking questions that have nothing to do with their business. What do they do for fun? Where do they go for trips? Tell me about your family. Get to know them personally and you'll start to dissect what makes them tick. Um, The other thing is they may be hesitant to say what they want. So you, you may have to guess at it or talk to people around them. Right. And again, it's not that I'm saying that their number two or their CFO is going to like breach their confidence, but they might be willing to say, you know, listen, um, the brand is really important to, to Susan. Susan really cares about the brand. You should keep that in mind. Right. Um, right. So I, I think asking a lot of questions and, and, and asking a lot of questions that aren't traditional due diligence questions like, well, how'd you get started in this business? Why'd you build the? Why'd you choose this product? Why'd you choose this location? Um, you know, what's your philosophy around how you run your business? You know, what, how would you describe your culture? Stuff like that will sort of, you'll start to extract little nuggets. At
0: least I'm on the right track. And that's where I always start. I love, I love starting like, what you know, tell me how you built this. Like, you know, tell me the origin story. And yeah. then, you know, and then you know, I, I have a knack for people just opening up to me, you know, so I used to not like it much. Cause I, I, within 10 minutes, I know everything about anybody around me. And then yeah. I got to where I was like, well, you know, that's actually a, 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 not a bad skill to have. And, um, so that I always start there. I always start with like, So tell me how you built this, you know, how did you got family? Are they involved in the business? You know, I asked that one a lot because I I found a few times where husband's leaving and we find out later and towards the end of the due diligence that wife probably won't want to stay around either. And she's been doing all the books for years. (laughs) Right. Or she's a, you know, she's like the glue that holds everything together. She's like, you know, they call her the office assistant, but she does pretty much everything. And he's just the figurehead. Uh, Mm -hmm. You'd be surprised on how many times in the older businesses where like, the owners in their 70s you know in their generation it wasn't common especially in manufacturing stuff for women to start those type of businesses yeah. but when you really look at it my dad worked his entire life at one and uh emerson and wanda ran it they're both gone now Wanda around wanted to run that business from day one emerson knew paint he was a paint manufacturing company he knew how to like you know how to do that he was uh, he came from that industry wanted to run mm-hmm. that business she ran the sales guys you know he walked around and you know you know, manage stuff. I remember as a kid, you would buy like I used to love taking stuff there to sell to him because he's like, "Oh, you're selling c- candy canes. I'll buy one for everybody in the factory." And he, you, you, you stop by. And if you're the first one to sell chocolate bars, he'd buy a right. hundred of them because he had almost a hundred employees, yeah. right? So, uh, you know, I bought. I always made sure I had extra boxes in the back because I knew what he was going to say. But. She ran that company and, uh, in early stages, she probably one of the biggest influences I had to be an entrepreneur because on Saturdays, my dad would take me to work and she'd always have me come sit with her for a little while and I would see her do, she did accounting on the big green pads, like for the, you know, the Wayne computers and stuff. And I would see her doing all this stuff and I was like, what are you doing? And she's like, come around here. And she'd show me and why she's doing it and why it's important. And, you know, yeah. So knowing who's in the company, who the key players are, what their motivations are and, and getting to know who interacts is is important i get that absolutely so. yeah. yeah yeah and it
1: and it allows you you know yeah it allows you to maximize value but it also allows you to make everyone happy right because mm-hmm. i you know i i want the lowest purchase price possible but if along the way i can give the founder something that will make them happy that's great for me and especially if it makes the employees happy that comes back to me because you know i i that i i need retention so i i think it's it's actually interesting, a lot of M&A people, uh, you know, your audience has a lot of people who actually run businesses. If you run a business, you need to focus on humans, right? You need to actually think about what humans want, what's going to make them happy. But a lot of people who do just pure mergers and acquisitions aren't necessarily wired that way. They, they, They haven't necessarily run businesses. They haven't had to think about employee morale as much. And they tend to try to make it a purely financial transaction. And I feel like it's almost two ships passing in the night between them and the founders because the founders are like, yeah, yeah, I understand you want to, you know, it, it's it's sort of the difference between buying the car that I have on my used car lot and buying the car that I lovingly restored with my father over the last 20 years. Those are two totally different types of financial right. transactions right and the second one i'm i'm yeah i want to get a price for it but i'm also really concerned what are you doing with this are you gonna drive it carefully are you gonna you're gonna maintain it are you can change the oil i actually care about that stuff
0: we're running out of time here and i hate to do that but uh <laughs> so what if if they, if if somebody could only pull two or three things out of the show what would you want them to walk away like what do you what would be uh uh what would what would be the top takeaways you want people to have on this show
1: sure i'd say number one especially over the next couple of years, but always there are diamonds in the rough sitting in large corporations. If you can find them, there's Mm -hmm. a huge amount of value to be unlocked. Number two, if you're selling a business, prepare it for sale. The the prep is as important as the thing that you built. Um, And then number three, I'd say, Think about everyone around the table's motivations, what they want, financial and non-financial. If you can figure that out, you can construct a deal that's better for everyone, but perhaps more, most importantly, better for you.
0: How do we reach you? How do we uh, reach out to you if somebody wants to work with you or chat with you about something they heard on the show?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, best way is there's contact information at my website, which is michaelfrankel.com. Um, and uh, I also have a couple of books uh you know, depending on what level of sophistication you have around m I've written a book called M&A Basics and another one uh, called MA Deal Makers. Um And I try to speak on things like this because uh, I love this topic. Um, and then you can also, you can find me on LinkedIn as well. I'm, I'm a little bit of a Luddite, so I'm not on Instagram or TikTok or any of that stuff. But, uh, but yeah, michaelfrankel.com and LinkedIn, always a good place to get me.
0: I'll put all those links inside of the show notes. I'll have uh, my team also put the... Uh books on Amazon on there. So people can get to that. Uh, I appreciate you being here today. And, uh, is there anything that myself or the audience can do for you? You got any, uh, any, uh, ask that you could, uh, you know, say, Hey, if you've got a company like this or, or.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think if you, if you have a company that you think fits the criteria, I'm always interested in hearing about them and you can reach out to me. Um, you know, I always love to speak to audiences. So if you're ever getting a group together and you want to talk about M and a, um, and then, you know, if you know people who could benefit from it, love, love people to buy my books, not just because I make some tiny amount of money, but I, I'm a deep believer in m and as this value creator. And so I love people learning more about how to do these things right.
0: Lynn over at um, uh, Acquisition auto Magazine is putting together an event here. He asked me to be one of the speakers. But uh, if you'd like to talk, it's going to be a virtual event. But uh, he's got a magazine about buying and selling companies. And uh, he's putting together something, it sounds like. uh, We'll get you on the radar for him to see if you guys want to have a chat about that.
1: Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, as you can tell, I'm not very talkative and, and I'm very quiet.
0: No, this works. Awesome. Well, I appreciate having you in the show. Hang out for a second afterwards and we'll call that the show, guys. Excellent. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show. Ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold, and M&A to decision makers who are ready to buy. The Investors and Entrepreneurial Professional Mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer mastermind introduced first in Napoleon Hill's famous book, Think and Grow Rich. With accountability partnering, where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com, that's T I E
1: pm.com and check out the investors and entrepreneurs professional mastermind